Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 582 with Bruce Tolkien. Bruce is going to share what you got to do to become that indispensable go-to person in your team and in your broader workplace. You'll learn, one, the mindset that makes you indispensable, two, why you shouldn't stick to your specialty, and three, how to stop juggling and start finishing tasks. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash app 582 or expand your episode notes or description in your current podcast app player, but some of them don't have tappable links and none of them have the full transcript because that's just too much to stick in there. But anyway, good stuff awaits you at awesomeatyourjob.com, whether it is the particular notes and links and transcript for this episode or the gold nugget summary, insight, wisdom, or a directory to every episode we've released. You could search by keyword, by topic, or competency covered. There's a lot of good stuff. Anywho, Pitch complete. Here's Bruce's story. Bruce Tolgan is the best-selling author of It's Okay to Be the Boss and the CEO of Rainmaker Thinking, the management, research, consulting, and training firm he founded in 1993. All of his work is based on 27 years of intensive workplace interviews and has been featured in thousands of news stories around the world. Bruce's newest book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, is available in July from Harvard Business Review Press. You can follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Tolgan or visit his website at rainmakerthinking.com. Big thanks to Bruce for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now here's Bruce. Bruce, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me back on. Well, I'm really excited to dig into your wisdom. And, and last time we spoke, which was way back in episode 302, I was impressed with just how real a sense you had for the worker and the, the crisis of undermanagement, as you called it at the time. Can you tell us what's the lay of the land right now in terms of the, the worker experience amidst remote work and pandemic and what's really going on here? I think most people right now are feeling a tremendous sense of uncertainty. A lot of people, of course, are afraid for their health and well-being or the health and well-being of uh, their colleagues or their family. I think a lot of people are worried about the security of their jobs. I think in the environment where a lot of people have been furloughed or who have been let go, usually as a result of just economic necessity by employers, 
are leaving fewer people to do as much work or more work in many cases, trying to reinvent the work in some cases, or trying to figure out what to do the same and what has to change. I think most people are feeling very vulnerable to a lot of forces outside their control. And look, even before the pandemic era, I think like employers were trying to get more and more and more out of every person. Most people were feeling, I think, like they have to deal with more and more people up, down, sideways, and diagonal all over the organization chart. People are fielding requests all day long from their colleagues, not just from their boss and their teammates, but from people in other teams and other departments. So I think people are grappling with a tremendous sense of uncertainty and overcommitment. And that's where we find ourselves. Okay. Well, and, and you addressed many of these questions in, even before the pandemic came about in your upcoming book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work. Can you tell us what's the, the key thesis here? Yeah. Everywhere I go, people are saying, gosh, I want to be one of those indispensable go-to people, but how can I say yes to everyone and everything? And the result is you get overcommitted and then all of a sudden you're juggling. Pretty soon if you're juggling, you start dropping balls. What do you do? You work harder and harder and harder. You try to juggle faster and faster and faster. So those increasingly were the questions that people have been asking me in our seminars. And it led me to our research. Uh, one of the things I've been doing for years is studying what I call go-to people. Everywhere I go when I'm doing talent assessments, I ask everybody, hey, who are your go-to people? For years, I've been trying to figure out what is it that these people are doing? So you know, why did they make it to these go-to lists over and over and over again, consistently over time? What is it that they have in common? How is it that they don't get overcommitted and don't suffer from siege mentality and don't go from saying yes, yes, yes to saying no, 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 get away from me. It's not my job. You're not my boss. So it was really an effort to study that data and draw the lessons from it that led to this new book. All right. Well, do tell what does make a person a go-to person. And, and first of all, what are the benefits of being a go-to person? I mean, I imagine, hey, job security, feeling good about yourself, but you may have a more research-based answer to that. Yeah. Look, if everybody always wants to go to you, this gives you an incredible source of power that other people want to work with you. Other people want you to want to work with them. And so I wanted to see, well, what is it about these folks? It didn't take long to realize that it was a true service mindset. People who they really want to add value in every interaction with others. They really want to add value. They focus on, hey, here's what I can do for you, not what I want from you. And so it sounds very selfless, but of course, that is exactly what leads to overcommitment syndrome, right? So if that was the conundrum, right? How do you make yourself a go to person and serve others consistently without? succumbing to overcommitment syndrome. And what I came to realize was what makes it seem like an unsolvable puzzle is actually the key to the solution. That it was the people who realized that first and foremost, you have to fight and defeat overcommitment syndrome. You have to resist overcommitment syndrome because if you say yes, yes, yes to everyone and everything, 
you end up doing nothing for anyone ultimately because you make lots of unnecessary mistakes. You get into all kinds of trouble. Okay. Well, this is resonating in terms of that's what makes an indispensable person is just that they want to add a ton of value. They genuinely care. We've heard this sort of theme from in a number of ways from a number of guests. They're not so much motivated by climbing the ladder, being the top dog, looking awesome, but they, they just really do believe in what they're doing and want to help people and, and achieve those objectives. So, so cool. So there we have it. That's the thing that makes them indispensable. And yet they also have to then play defense against the, the tendency to, to overcommit, to, to do everything for everyone at all times. So how's that done? Well, I started calling this the peculiar mathematics of real influence because it's become conventional wisdom that if you don't have authority, you have to use influence. And I tried to figure out, well, what do people really mean by that? Use influence. Often what they really mean is stand-ins for authority. I mean, what is authority? Authority is control over rewards and punishments. Authority is a position power whereby you enforce the rules using rewards and punishments. That's what authority is. Influence is power you have without position. And But this leads a lot of people down the wrong path because are you supposed to badger? You know, are you supposed to, sometimes people deputize themselves, right? They go over your head or they go to their boss or, or they try to play the quid pro quo. You do this for me. I'll do that for you. You don't do this for me. Then maybe I'll withhold my support for you in the future. Sometimes they try to flatter and ingratiate themselves, but none of these things build real influence. The reason I call it the peculiar mathematics of real influence is it's an asset that you have, but it lives in the minds of other people. My influence with you lives in your brain and your heart. Now I feel powerful. <laughs> right? So that's why the mathematics are so peculiar, because if you try to badger or bribe or threaten or bully or uh, ingratiate yourself or go over somebody's head, you lose real influence. They stop rooting for you. They root against you. That's right. They're like, that guy sucks. Right. <laughs> I, I would like to not help him if possible. Yeah. So you might get your way in the short term, but in the long term, you do not build up your influence in other people's hearts and minds. Right. So the way you build up your influence in other people's hearts and minds is by conducting yourself in a certain way. By, and I call it playing the long game one moment at a time, right? It's doing the right thing in the short term so that in the long run, more good things happen for everyone. That you try really hard in the short term to conduct yourself in a way that makes things go better for everyone over time. And so as a result of that, you build a track record of making good decisions. You build a track record. Nobody wants to hear no to their request. So, so many people, they say yes, 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 to please you in the short term. But a lot of people, they're saying yes, 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 because they're trying to please you right now. I always tell over-promisers, mark my words, you will be known for whether you deliver on that promise ultimately. So you might make me happy in the moment, but if you over-promise and don't deliver, that's what I'm going to remember. And whereas, in fact, you don't have to say yes to everything. What you have to do is take people's needs seriously. 
You have to engage with the ask, engage with the request, give it respect and due diligence. And what you want to be doing is trying to do the right thing for the right reasons every step of the way. And this is what builds up your real influence. When you become known as somebody who's adding value in every interaction, sometimes by saying no, but you're adding value in every interaction. Well, you know, and it's, (laughs) this just reminds me of my marriage, just in terms of often what is needed is, you know, empathy and listening as much or more so than swooping into action and fixing things. And it also takes less time, (laughs) but more maybe mental effort in terms of remembering, ah, yes, this is what I need. And so I like the way you said that in terms of respecting the request and you're, you're sort of, you're taking it seriously, you're honoring it. And I can just kind of imagine, I'm thinking about my buddy Pat right now. He seems to exemplify a lot of the things that you say here in terms of like, you're, you're really listening, you're interested, you're curious, you're, you're kind of saying, oh, so what would be the implications of this? What's at stake? What makes this hard? What have you tried so far? Like, I guess having that kind of conversation and then offering hopefully something that's somewhat helpful, <laughs> you know, along the way, even if it's not you, goes a long way. That's exactly right. So what sets apart the go-to person who's indispensable? It's the person who is most likely to help you get your needs met on time, on spec, in ways that build up the working relationship rather than damage it over time, right? So the people who are most consistent likely to help you get your needs met, that's why you keep going back to that person. You go to somebody who says, yes, 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 and doesn't deliver, you stop going back to that person. You go to somebody who only has no in their repertoire you stop going back to that person. You go to somebody though, who is all about trying to add value. So let's say you come to me and say, Hey, look, I'll offer the, you do this for me. I'll do that for you. If I'm a go-to person who's really trying to build real influence, I'm going to say, look, if it's the right business decision, if it's aligned with the chain of command and the mission, If I can understand the ask and I'm the right person to do it for you, if I can do it, if I'm allowed to do it, if I should do it, if I'm good at it, if it's one of my specialties or it's something I can get good at, if it's something I can get done for you, I'm going to do that because it's my job, not because you're going to offer me a quid pro quo. Be the person other people don't want to disappoint, not because of where you are on the org chart, but because of how you conduct yourself, how you treat people and the role you play in the workplace. So, you know, that's the peculiar mathematics of real influence. Sometimes you got to take the bullet by saying, no, I'm not going to do that for you and making somebody unhappy in the short term. Or yes, I can do that, but in, in a month, not right now. But over time, you build the reputation. So that's why I call it the peculiar mathematics of real influence, because the more you really serve others, the more power you have in that they want you to succeed. They want to do things for you. They want to do things with you. They want to make good use of your time. So there's five steps that we identified that sort of come out of that way of thinking. And the first step is if you don't have authority, align with authority. (laughs) So there's still somebody in charge. 
So, so, oh, hey, work it out at your level. Well, wait a minute. Step one, make sure you understand what's required, what's allowed, what's not required, what's not allowed. So you first, you've got to go vertical before you can go sideways or diagonal. And so when you say align with authority, in practice, that just means something like, hey, boss, <laughs> we got this request come in. It seems like it'd be helpful. In a way, it does. Because look, you've, you've got three choices if you're trying to work things out at your own level right? One, you sort of say, all right, hey, let's proceed until apprehended. You know, right. let's just do this. And let's hope this is the, the sort of the flip side of better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission, right? But often if you proceed until apprehended, you have a lot of work to undo because it turns out, no, that's not what we wanted you to do. Another possibility is that you escalate every disagreement, right? And then the, the other possibility is that somehow you try to use some kind of stand-in for authority, like, like a quid pro quo or, or some other form, right? But what makes the most sense is to go over your own head first. And so, yes, it's okay, boss, but here's the thing. Sometimes people will say to me, well, does that mean that I have to go to my boss before I work out anything at my own level? And the answer is only if you're not already aligned with your boss. See, you know, you want to be that person who already knows what your boss would say. You're so aligned that you almost could speak for your boss. And if you have people who report to you, well, they have to come to you before they work things out at their own level, only if they're not exactly sure what you would say. So that vertical alignment becomes an anchor. But I put it there first, not that every single time you are going to work things out at your own level, you should go over your own head. But remember, you're not going to be in a position to work things out at your own level unless first you have really good vertical alignment. And I think that's that's excellent. And we've heard from uh, Mary Abajay about managing your manager and how that's so critical to have those conversations, you know, up front in advance. Hey, what's important to you? What are your top goals? What are the biggest priorities? And et cetera. So are, are there any other particular key questions or things to cover with boss that, that go a really long way in terms of getting that vertical alignment? Yeah. Here's what you want to be doing. Number one, you want to be making sure you know mission, priorities right now, ground rules, action steps. So that, that's where you want to be getting alignment. And then today, tomorrow, this week, what are our execution priorities? And also you want to be feeding information up and down the chain of command about anything that's changing in the boardroom or anything. Hey, here's some front lines intelligence that can help your, your boss stay in the loop on the other end of the spectrum. So you want to be having regular structured conversations with your boss. If anybody reports to you, you want to be having regular structured conversations with the people who report to you. That's the vertical anchor, right? Then you've got guardrails and then you've got to create structure and alignment sideways and diagonal. And here's the thing, so much sideways and diagonal communication comes in meetings, but a lot of it comes in relatively unstructured, informal communication. Much of what we have to say to each other all day at work is asking. Much of our ongoing dialogues are making requests of each other. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this happens in the middle of a Zoom team meeting, right, with crosstalk. Sometimes it's a text or a call. When we used to work together uh, in offices and, and other workplaces, it might be stopping by one's cubicle or a hallway conversation. 
And so one of the things that we identified that these go-to people do is once they have vertical alignment and they've got their guardrails, they know what's not up to them. That leaves a lot, which is basically everything else. (laughs) So then step two is know when to say no and how to say yes. And that's really not creating a bunch of cumbersome bureaucracy, but it means putting some due diligence into how you take an ask or a request and make sure you really understand it. Tune in to other people's needs. Tune in to the ask and then make sure you really understand it. If somebody starts to make a request, stop them and visibly take notes. Ask good questions. Make sure you really understand what they're asking. Uh, That's a great way to respect somebody else's needs and tune into their ask. And then know when to say no. Can I do this? Am I allowed to do this? And then should I do this? Which is, that's the tough one, right? What's the ROI on this? And sometimes the answer is not yet. Or sometimes the answer is, I'm not sure. Go back and fine tune this ask so I can give it even more due diligence. Sometimes it's yes, I could do that in two weeks. Or sometimes it's, oh, you know who could do that for you? Is this other go-to person I know, right? So steps one and two are align vertically so that step two, you can give every ask the due diligence it deserves. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that to be a go-to person, you got to say yes, 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 yes. No, you, every good no frees you up for a better yes. Now, yes is where all the action is. Yes is where you have an opportunity to add value, but don't waste your yeses. Yeah, the image that comes to mind for me here is like just a venture capitalist in terms of there are many, many deal opportunities that, that come across their desk, but the right answer tends to be saying no to the vast majority of them to say yes to the ones that, that are just right. And, and even then still, uh, most of their yeses <laughs> are, are not fruitful in terms of, of, of creating value, but boy, a few of them are plenty fruitful. So it works out. Yeah. And look, it is an investment decision. It's how are you going to invest your time and energy? You can't do everything. So it's a matter, if you're going to beat over commitment, you have to get the right things done. You can't do everything for everybody. So you have to do the right things. So step three in the process is work smart. You know, before we go there, if I may, we're working smart. I'd love to hear, do you have any pro tips on, on how you recommend articulating a no when necessary? Yeah. I mean, look, a lot of people say the secret is knowing how to say no. I have racked my brain and I have looked at data from hundreds of thousands of interviews. I cannot find a proper sugar coating for no that makes it taste good. All right. (laughs) So I think, yeah, you got to learn how to say no is kind of a red herring. The trick is knowing when to say no and when to say no is when yes will turn out to be a disappointment. When yes is going to turn out to be the wrong answer. That's why it's playing the longer game because your no's are as valuable as your track record of making the right decision on no. I mean, no is a huge favor. No at the right time is a huge favor because the ask was half-baked, 
right? So we might, we might say yes and go off in the wrong direction. No, no, no. Let's, let's fine tune that ask a little more before we say yes. Or it might turn out that this was not a priority and it's going to take up a huge amount of opportunity cost. No and yes are all about opportunity cost. You want a yes to lead to a productive collaboration where you're going to make an execution plan and execute on tangible results that end up adding real value. So every bad yes is a squandered opportunity. Well, that's well said. And, and I, I agree that there is no way that you can say no that I found that makes the other person say, you know, thank you so much, Bruce. That's amazing. So maybe if you can't make it taste good, how do you make it taste the least bad? So if you had to tell me no right now, Bruce, hey, Bruce, could you give a thousand copies of your book for free to our audience? I think that just make a huge difference for them and they'd really appreciate it. Well, see, I'm, I want to consider that one, but let me take it as one that I would have to say no at the outset. Um, see, so, so, so what I would say there is, oh, hey, I need to know more about that ask. I need to know who are those audience members? How do you anticipate we'd get it to them? What's the upside? You have to ask a bunch of good questions. But So the first part of uh, helping somebody swallow a no is asking lots of questions to understand their ask not to humor them, but to really investigate the opportunity. Then the next part is you say, oh, hey, I can't do that for the following reasons, right? Gee, I I could feed my family tomorrow or I could give you some books. I'd love to give you some books, but I got to feed my family, right? That's I can't. I don't have the resources or so I'm not allowed to. It could be if you're one of my government clients, I am not allowed to do that because that's a violation of, of law. So, but let's say we get past the, I can do that for you. I'm allowed to do that for you. I'm just not going to, because on balance, I evaluate this is not, not my top priority. So I might say, hey, I shouldn't do this because it's actually a bad idea. And then I might try to talk you out of it, which could end up being a big favor to you. I don't think you should pursue this idea. Could be, I say, hey, I might be able to do this in a few weeks or a few months. So if you'd be willing to stay in dialogue with me, I'd be willing to revisit this down the line. Now, I'm not stringing you along. If I know the answer is no, I'm going to tell you no. But maybe the answer is, gee, if you're bound and determined to do this, right, get books and give them to a thousand of your listeners, I'd hate to miss that opportunity. So I got to, you know, let me see if there's some way I can make this happen. Right. Another might be I've developed another go to person and I could do a huge favor for that person because that person happens to have an extra thousand books. And I bet that person would be thrilled to have this opportunity to give those books. So I'm going to put the two of you in touch. I'm going to do you a favor by introducing you to that person. I'm going to do that person a favor by introducing that person to you. And you're going to proceed. Worst case scenario, I say, hey, let me explain what I do. I sell books, not giveaway books. So if down the road you want to buy some books, I'm your man. Or what I normally do is seminars, right? So if you need someone to do a seminar, hey, I'd still love to work with you, right? In other words, what you want to do is be authentic. And so when you're saying no, you're explaining why. 
You're trying to help the person come up with a solution to their need, maybe. At the very least, you're saying, hey, I want to understand what you do. Let me explain what I do. Maybe somewhere looking around the corner, there's a way that we could be valuable to each other. I'd love to hear what are some of the best clarifying questions to really respect the request and do a great job with this. One of my favorite as we're as we're talking through this is you know, something along the lines of what are you hoping to achieve by getting a thousand books out there to for free to to listeners? Because that sort of like sparks all kinds of potential ideas and opportunities. Do you have any other kind of go-to questions, uh, go-to questions for go-to people that help you do a great job of clarifying? Yeah. So I think it's useful to come up with the objective because then, you know, you might find out that the person hasn't crystallized the ask very much at all. If, if you can help them meet their objective with a much better ask, right? But I think basically what you're trying to do an intake memo, which is really building a proposal from the inside out. So what you want to know is exactly what's the deliverable. So in a way that rhymes with the objective, right? Mm -hmm. What's the deliverable exactly that you want? And then what's going to be required of me? What part of this can you do? How can you help me help you? Right? How can you help me help you help me help you? <laughs> you can keep going on that track. But you know, what's the time frame? Let's estimate the resources that would be needed, the obstacles, whose authority do we need? Where are we going to get the resources? What's the time horizon? You want to build, you want to, uh, what are the steps along the way? Uh, what would be the sequence of steps and ownership of each step? You want to build a short proposal inside out, even if it's on the back of an envelope or on a napkin. Well, you know what's so funny about this is as, as I'm imagining how this plays out, even if you ended a no, they'll be like, oh, that's kind of a buzzkill because I was really excited about the progress we were making. But at the same time, as a result of having spoken with you, I am enriched and invalued that's a word, <laughs> and, and better off <laughs> because now I have some more insight and clarity on what I'm up to and what I should go do. So even though you've told me no, I am better off for having asked you. I think so. And even if you already had it crystallized, doesn't it tell you how I do business? Doesn't it tell you that I'm serious about trying to help? I'm serious about understanding what you want, and I'm serious about trying to do what I can in the conversation and maybe following the conversation to operate in such a way that it adds value for you. And so a big part of this is slowing down so that you make good use of other people's time, show other people that you're serious about adding value. That's good. All right. Well, please continue. Step three, work smart. So step three is work smart. And sometimes, you know, people are like, oh yeah, work smart. Got it. Never heard that one before. Right. But, but the reality is a lot of people think that to be a go-to person, you just got to keep working and working. What is the go-to person that just the one who can outwork everyone? And in fact, if that's your only strategy, you're going to burn out. So then some people will say, oh, well, work smart. Well, what does that mean? Well, on one level, it means do the things you're already really good at, do the things you can do very well, very fast with a good attitude. You know, you can deliver on that. The problem is that most people uh, don't have the opportunity to, to only work in their area of passion and strength, mm -hmm. right? So, oh, oh uh, uh, not good at that. Sorry. I'd like to, but I'm, I'm committed to working smart, so I won't be able to help you with that. And so what I tell people is there's a lot of tasks, responsibilities, and projects you're going to have to do 
that might not be something you're already good at or uh, that's in your area of passion and strength. But if that's true, slow down and get really good at it. You know, don't just wing it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Don't keep trying it. Oh, I'm so busy that I don't have time to stop and get good at it. Mm-hmm. If you're so busy that you don't have time to stop and get good at it, you are in a pickle, <laughs> right? So you got to stop and get good at it. Learn best practices. Oh, this is how I do it. Is it? Well, is that the best way? Right? You know, maybe you need to learn. No, no, I'll figure it out on my own. I don't want to, I don't want people to see me learning. They might think I'm not competent. Well, they're going to think you're not competent if you pretend to know how to do it and then make it up as you go along and reinvent the wheel. Then mm-hmm. you're going to seem not competent, right? One of the ironies is that people who are really good at stuff know that people who learn in plain sight are probably the ones who are going to get good at stuff too. You're not showing yourself to be less competent by learning in plain sight. You're Again, you're showing the kind of person you are, right? So look, if you ask me to do something, I go, oh, that's my specialty. I can already do that very well, very fast with a great attitude and deliver for you. Okay. But if it's not my specialty and I say, gee, you know, I keep getting asked to do this. Let me tell you, that's not my specialty, but it's going to be one of my specialties soon. I'm going to learn best practices. I'm going to study them and master them. I'm going to develop repeatable solutions to the most common problems and issues and needs. I'm going to create job aids to guide me. That's how you professionalize what you do. Uh, find the best practices, create repeatable solutions, get good tools. So anything you find yourself having to do regularly, professionalize, and then you make it one of your specialties. Because once something is one of your specialties, then think of any minute or hour you spend on one of your specialties, you're going to add more value with less likelihood of failure than something that's not one of your specialties. Certainly, yeah. So there is a kernel of genius in working your area of passion and strength. There's a kernel of genius in, hey, that's not my job, right? Because really what somebody's saying is, gee, every minute I spend doing that, I'm not going to be adding optimal value. But everything you, you professionalize and make one of your specialties is another thing you can do very well, very fast. So specialize for sure. But when something comes up that's not your job, you got to kind of put it through the following routine, right? First, is it something that really shouldn't be your job, right? Like this is a wild goose chase or something like that, right? That, you know, well, you know, wait just a minute, right? I'm not even sure anyone should be doing this, right? <laughs> or is it something that's not your job, like the paperwork part of almost anything? Well, I always say to people, actually, that is your job. So you should professionalize the paperwork part too. Right. Or is it like, well, it's not my job to take out the trash. Well, that's what I call somebody's got to do. So don't be a jerk about it, (laughs) you know? And okay, maybe you don't have to be the gopher, but maybe you're like, okay, I'm the guy. Sure. I'll be the, I'll be the one to take out the trash and you do it really well. You know, I remember when I was the junior person on the team, I, (laughs) in, in consulting, we needed lunch. Someone had to get lunch and the delivery apps were not <laughs> proliferating at the time the way they are now. And so I, I did it, but I did professionalize it and it was appreciated because I kept disappointing people. They're like, oh, I didn't want beans in my burrito. 
I was like, by golly, I'm just making a full-blown burrito spreadsheet, and you're just going to circle what kind of rice, what kind of beans, what kind of meat, and then we're going to pass that little printout around, and then I'm going to Chipotle, and then no one's disappointed anymore. And they loved it. They're like, <laughs> great. Exactly. And it's like, oh, oh, I'm the great, I'm the lunch guy. Well, wait, no, what you're showing people is I'm willing to be the guy to go get lunch. And there's nothing I do regularly that I just wing it and, and make it up as I go along. That's just how I do business is I professionalize the things I do. And the funny thing is also hidden is these other things that are sort of close to your job that, hey, maybe that could be another specialty. Or, okay, it's far away from your job, but hey, maybe that could be one of my specialties. The, the funny thing is there's a tension between spending most of your time on your specialties and then paying attention to the things that are not your job because those are your opportunities to actually expand your repertoire. Yeah, well said. And, and I'll tell you what, I really appreciate when I talk to someone and they say, you know, I don't know how to do that yet, but I am excited to to learn or it's come up again and again i just need to i just need to nail this down and so i appreciate that and i guess sometimes the answer is you know what actually we need it perfect and we need it fast <laughs> so maybe you're not the right choice right now and maybe but you could be some weeks or months down the road and other times it's like you know what that's the best yes i've gotten out of everybody i've asked i'll take it i'll take it right exactly and by the way right so, so you're putting people on notice that, let me be clear, I am a professional, but this is not one of my specialties, but I'll take a crack at it, but be on notice, you know, that, that I'm, this is my first go around or whatever it is. And it's one of the reasons why job aids, repeatable solutions and best practices captured in checklists and stuff like that. Checklist is a good example, because if I haven't done it in a while, maybe I'm rusty. The job aid's going to help me. If I do it all the time, the job aid might keep me from going on autopilot. If I can't do it and, and I need someone else to do it and they're like, that's not my specialty, I say, oh, here's a job aid. That's going to help you learn a lot faster. It also will help me educate my customer and say, let me just show you so you can understand that job aids come in really handy when it comes to trying to get someone new up to speed faster on something that isn't their specialty. Now, you've referenced job aids numerous times, and I contextually can glean that this is a document that contains useful information about how to do a job. Can you expand on what are the components or key elements of a great job aid document? Yeah, a job aid is anything that helps you follow best practices, apply repeatable solutions, or draw from repeatable solutions to extrapolate for a problem of first impression, or a past work product that gives you a jumpstart on making a new work product. So, so this could be a checklist, it could be a, a process map, it could be an instructional video, it could be some example deliverables, just sort of anything that aids in doing the job. A checklist is a classic example. A plan is a classic example. Sometimes surgeons use a job aid, which is that somebody uses a magic marker to put an X on the right spot so that they don't cut on the wrong side. That X is a job aid and it comes in handy. Okay, cool. All right. So that's working smart. What's step four? Step four is finish what you start. And people will say, well, Oh, I'm always so busy. I'm always juggling. I'm double and triple booked for meetings as if 
that's a badge of honor. And I tell people, if you're double or triple booked, that means you can't decide what meeting to go to. And if you think you're multitasking, there's no such thing. And juggling is what you're actually doing because multitasking is a fiction. What you're actually doing is task shifting. And some people do it really fast. That's why I call it juggling. But if you're always juggling, you're bound to drop the ball. So one of the things we wanted to look at is the people who were able to have a really busy schedule and an ever-growing to-do list, but they still get stuff done. And what we identified uh, was that the people who get the most done are the people who break work into smaller chunks and break their execution time into bigger chunks. So it's bigger chunks of time, smaller chunks of work. And so the drill is simple. Look at your schedule every day, but find the gaps in your schedule, your do not disturb zones for focused execution. Mm -hmm. And then look at your work and your to-do list and plug in doable items, doable tasks, doable chunks of work in those schedule gaps. So, you know, there's 168 hours in a week and nobody's making any more of them. But in fact, if you create schedule gaps in which you execute on concrete results and start with the highest leverage concrete results, then you are actually manufacturing time for yourself because what you're doing is you're obviating unnecessary problems. You're obviating problems hiding and getting out of control. You're obviating squandered resources. You're obviating uh, work uh, either getting done wrong or not getting done. You're obviating holding other people up, right? So high leverage time is setting someone else up for success. High leverage time is avoiding an unnecessary problem. High leverage time is planning for optimal use of resources. Uh, high leverage time is if there's a set of steps that need to be done in sequence and one of them takes time up front. So like I always, uh, I call it preheating the oven is a great example. Or, you know, putting the bread in the oven before you make the salad. It's uh, sequencing. Uh, those are all high leverage execution times. And that's how you start to create more and more schedule gaps for yourself in which you can get more and more concrete results done. Yeah. I like that notion of the, with the oven or it's sort of like getting something in motion so that it's moving while I'm doing other things. Exactly. So it's giving somebody instructions. It's cleaning the machine sharpening the saw, what mm -hmm. Covey would say, sharpening the saw. It's, it's high leverage time, but you got to execute, execute, execute. So people who don't make time for focused execution, they're the ones who are always busy, but never finishing things. All right. And the fifth step is keep getting better and better at working together. And there's so much finger pointing and so much politicking in the workplace. And that's because everyone knows relationships are where it's at. The problem is, yes, the relationships are key, but if the work goes wrong, the relationships go sour. And if the work keeps getting better and better, the relationships get better and better. So uh, I always tell people, take time to review and look around the corner together. Every time you get a task, responsibility, or project done with somebody, stop. Don't go into a conference room and blame, right? Don't whisper behind people's back and finger point. 
What you do is go to your collaboration partner and say, hey, here's what went well. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And let's look at how we can work better together going forward. And let's look around the corner and plan the next collaboration. So it's basically taking a continuous improvement approach to relationship management. So when people say it's all about the relationships and networking, that doesn't mean making best friends and politicking or undermining the people you don't like. It means take a continuous improvement to working relationships and things will go better and better and better. And if you do that, right, if you align up and down the chain of command and then put structure and substance into your sideways conversations, if you make good decisions about yes and no by really tuning into the ask, if you professionalize what you do, uh, work smart, finish what you start, and you keep fine-tuning how you work with people, then people notice how you conduct yourself. The ones that people keep going back to over and over and over again, the ones everyone wants to work with, the one everyone wants you to want to work with them, that's what they do. That's what go-to people have in common. And when you do that, you know, sometimes people will say to me, well, problem is I'm the only go-to person here. Mm-hmm. Well, are you sure? You know, they say, well, if I worked in a, in a great organization, well, that would make it easier to be a go-to person. Well, sure. If you work for a great organization, it makes it easier. But it turns out if you conduct yourself this way, you become a magnet for other go-to people. It becomes much easier to find go-to people. And if you can't find them, build them up. They will remember. That's great. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Stephen Covey says, remember, you can't take a screwdriver to somebody else's head and tighten the screw or loosen the bolt, but you can control how you respond to other people. And Covey called that being response-able. So that's one of my favorites. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, (laughs) how about Pavlov? All right. (laughs) Thanks, Pavlov. I'll do that again. Uh, I always tell people, if you reward people in close proximity to the performance in question, then they'll say, thanks, Pavlov. I'll do that again. (laughs) And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job. Well, right now, I guess my only tool is this studio we've just created. It is now my portal to the world. Because, you know, if you're in the business of selling hot air (laughs) to auditoriums full of people. This is not the best time. And so we've created a production studio so that we can deliver our research services and our training and consulting services right from this portal to the world. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? The best place to go is rainmakerthinking.com. Or I'm told you can link in with me at LinkedIn or at Bruce Tolgan on Twitter. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Every single interaction you have with people, stop focusing on what you need or you want from them and focus on what you can do to add value. Focus on what you can do for other people and you will build up the most valuable asset you possibly can have, which is real influence. You will build that up. And just remember uh, that the bank is the minds and hearts of other people. So stop focusing on what you need from other people and start focusing on what you can do for them. And you will become very rich in real influence. All right, Bruce, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck in all of your adventures and all the ways you're indispensable. 
Uh, thank you. Well, you're uh, great at this. You make it so easy and you make it so much fun. And uh, thanks for bringing out the best in me here. I really loved Bruce's take on tuning into the ask. And, and I've really experienced that <laughs> in terms of if someone genuinely seems interested, curious, fascinated even by what I'm trying to accomplish and why and and where it's going. It's like they're interested in my work. They're interested in me and they're interested in me. I like them. <laughs> so that's one bit of, of building influences. I just start to like the person. And then when you're listening closely, it makes it more fun and less of a hassle. Like, oh my gosh, this person is on me. I already got too much to do. It's like, huh, what's this all about? I'm curious. I, I wonder hmm, what would be the best way to accomplish that? And it's like my brain gets to take a little bit of a break from what I'm currently up to onto sort of a, a new adventure thingy uh, without the dread of, uh-oh, is this going to be more stuff I have to handle? And then you can provide some useful input, even if the answer is still no. So I love that. Tuning into the ask, getting curious, getting interested, people just like to be around that person. And then they don't want to disappoint you over time. Bruce, he nails it again. So great stuff. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep582. If you haven't already, I recommend pushing subscribe. If you do, you'll catch our next guest automatically and effortlessly. It's Jeff Hayden. He has cracked the code on motivation. If you'd like some more of it, he'll tell you how to get it. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 